Christian qualities, uh, character traits that should be showing to a, to a Christian. We've looked at godliness uh, two weeks ago. We looked at holiness last week. Uh, and today I want to look at servitude. Uh, and as we talk about that, you know, you may recall when we were talking about godliness, I raised the question, well, uh, why do we come here to church? It's a beautiful day. We could be riding up to northern New Hampshire, northern Vermont. We could look, be looking at the foliage. There's any number of things we could be doing different today. We're here to serve God. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That particular day, we talked about how we're here to become more godly, to learn more about godliness. We uh, talked last week from uh, Isaiah chapter 6 about being more holy, more like our God. And you're right. Today we're going to uh, talk about servitude. So you've got to ask yourself, why? Why do, we, uh, why do we do these disciplines? And as I was thinking about this, as I was putting this together, by the way, we're going to be in John chapter 13, if you're looking to turn there while I ramble on. Uh, John chapter 13. And as I'm thinking about why do we do these things, why do we pursue these disciplines, I can't help but think there was a documentary done with a, a number of bodybuilders uh, a long time ago. And the, the interviewer was interviewing the bodybuilders and so why do you exercise? Why do you build up your body? Why do you build these muscles, muscles upon muscles? Why are you doing that? What do you do with them? I do this. It, yes, but wh why do you build these muscles? Well, so, so I can do this. What, why do you do? What, is there a practical purpose? Why are you doing that? So I can do this. What are we doing here in church? We, we say we want to be more godly. We say we want to be more holy. We want to be more like our God. Why? So that we can look better? That's basically what that bodybuilder was saying. So I can look impressive? So I can be somebody that people look, oh, look at that. He's a godly person. That's a holy person. That's a Christian. Or are we doing it so that we can do something as servants of God? That ought to be our goal, correct? That ought to be our goal. So here we are. Uh, hopefully by now we found John chapter 13. Let me read John 13. I'm going to read the first 20 verses. It's a lengthy passage. Uh, bear with me. I'm going to read it. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at it briefly, and we'll be out of here. It goes like this. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part in me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and sat down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is past, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you this morning. We've some, sung some great songs about worship, and you are worthy of our worship. You're the only one worthy of our worship. We thank you for the opportunities that you give to us to serve you. We ask that you'll make your word clear to us here this morning. Show us just what you'd have for us to do and help us to change our lives to be more like you and to be better servants of you. I ask all that in your name. Amen. So we're looking at John's account of the Last Supper, obviously. Uh, and John's account is different, very different, than the ones that are listed in all the other Gospels. For one thing, John doesn't mention anything about the preparation of the room. He doesn't mention anything about the flow of the meal itself. And We can get that in other Gospels. We can look at Jesus breaking the bread and passing the cup and things of that nature. We don't have anything in John about Jesus' explanation of the significance of the bread and the cup. This is my body, this is my blood. We don't have any of that. And we don't have any of the uh, discussion of the wrangling of the, for the highest positions by all the disciples. You can find all those details out by going to one of the other Gospels, any one of the other Gospels, uh, and you can get more of those details. But on the other hand, None of the other Gospels talk about Jesus washing the disciples' feet either. That's only in John. Uh, and we also, in any of the other Gospels, don't get any of Jesus' talk on the importance of serving that we just read. See, all of the Gospels talk about the treachery of, Jesus, uh, of Judas, uh, as well as Judas suddenly leaving the supper. We didn't get to that point, but uh, all the Gospels cover that. But John focuses on different aspects because he has a different purpose in his writing. 
Now, there's several similarities to the other Gospels as well. Uh, they all make a point to mention that the Last Supper was only hours before the Passover proper. Remember, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover happened at the same time, basically. One was slightly before the other. This, uh, the Last Supper was actually the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they all focus on this last meal of Jesus with his disciples. Uh, and they all mention that Jesus knew exactly who was going to betray him. None of this took Jesus by surprise. He knew exactly who was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him as well. And yet he sat with these guys to have one more meal. That's humbling to think about. Now, if you study them all together, all the uh, Gospels accounts, and I strongly suggest that you do that at some point, uh, that really, it's the only way to get the full picture of what's going on. You've got to look at everybody's account, because they all had a different take on it. it. But as you do that, certain things are going to come together that will help to explain some of the context, as well as the attitudes that were present. Uh, for instance, it seems to make sense to me, as I look at them, that the quarrel of the disciples over who was the greatest uh, happens at roughly the same time as Jesus was washing their feet. Uh, as I look at the uh, Gospel of Luke, specifically Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30, it seems to fit right here what we're talking about here in John. So while Jesus was humbling himself to wash their feet, they were having a discussion about who was the greatest among them. And that puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? Uh, now, although all the gospel writers have a slightly different point of view, they all mesh together very, very well when you're looking at it. And if you're willing to study it all out, you're going to see that as you look at it carefully. I'm not going to take the time to do that today, because I want to focus specifically on Jesus' attitude of service, the attitude you and I ought to have, and that we ought to be pursuing. Now, and by the way, I'll get on a bit of a sidetrack here. Uh, this attitude of service, I've, I've complained the last two weeks when I've been up here about some of these uh, Christ character qualities of a Christian seem to be diminishing in the church in America today. And servitude is no, nothing different. Uh, an example of that is I got a telephone call just a couple of weeks ago from uh, Dave McLean. You know, Word of Life Ministry. We participate with Word of Life. We have for years. Three quarters of their uh, maintenance and function gets taken care of by volunteer efforts. Well, in the last five to ten years, uh, volunteer efforts at Word of Life have really deteriorated to the point where no one's going out there anymore. So I got a call from their maintenance department asking, hey, uh, can you and your boys come out here? We got, we got no wood for snow camp. Can somebody come out here and split wood? Next weekend, that's where I'm going to be. When I'm not here, uh, that's where I'm going to be. Pray about that if you want to. But the attitude of servitude, volunt uh, volunteering, helping boost the gospel and ministry of Christ is diminishing till it's almost non-existent anymore. This is something we really need to focus on. Just like two weeks ago, we looked at godliness. Last week, we looked at holiness servitude we need to focus on. We need to tighten up. I'm off the soapbox now. Uh, 
John has a very clear emphasis that's different than the other Gospels as well. You see it in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end, it says. Now, John's focus is not on the meal. He doesn't talk about the bread. He doesn't talk about the wine. He doesn't talk about telling the new covenant. We've already said that. John's focus is on Jesus' love for each of his disciples. He loved them to the end. The events of this evening are one final expression of Jesus' love for his disciples. One last time for Jesus to show In just a couple of hours, he's going to be arrested. Just a couple hours from this point. I personally believe that the significance here is not that Jesus loved them right up to his very last dying breath. I don't believe that's the emphasis that's here. So much as that he loved them to the very utmost of his being. See, the events this evening are a preview of the significance of the cross. The cross, of course, is the demonstration of the extent of Jesus' love for all of mankind. The events that we're looking at right now, and specifically Jesus washing the feet, is showing the extent of Jesus' love for this small group, these disciples, these 12 right here. But notice also that uh, Jesus' love was a love that couldn't be quenched by the forces of evil. This love couldn't be quenched by evil. Uh, Just look at the contrast with what we just looked at in verse 1. Jesus knew that he was going to be departing out of this world. Verse 2, the supper being ended, the devil having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, pray him. And in spite of the very present evil, Jesus still gets up, lays aside his clothes, took and girded himself with a towel at the disciples' feet. We see that in verse 4. Even though he knew all this, he riseth up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And it says that he went and poured water into a basin and started going through this. Jesus shows his care for the disciples in spite of the fact that verse 11 says that he knew Judas was going to betray him. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, said he, you're not all clean. Verse 38, uh, we didn't get to that far, but he says he knew Peter was going to deny him. Skip down to verse 38. Jesus answered him, talking to Peter, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And yet in the uh, passage that we did read, Jesus took special time to address Peter specifically. When Peter said, well, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus took a little bit of time to talk to Peter specifically. He didn't say with disgust, if I knew Peter was going to deny me, within just a couple of hours, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have spent any time extra with him. I wouldn't have done it. That's the difference between me and our Savior, you know. 
he's a whole lot more forgiving and a whole lot more considerate than I am. In fact, probably if you knew how spiteful and how irritable I can be, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. Uh, she'll, she'll agree. Uh, but regardless of this treachery, and regardless of the cowardice that's in these men right here, Jesus still loves them completely and freely. Now think about something else as well. This was a love that Jesus demonstrates even though he was fully aware of his own divine powers. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. Jesus knew that he was God. He knew he was going back to heaven in just a few hours. He knew all that. He knew, if verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, Jesus, the God-man, willingly and deliberately subjected himself to the needs of his disciples. even though he was fully aware of his own divine powers. Ultimately, he's going to sacrifice himself for them by submitting to an authority that is beneath him. You remember what Jesus said to Pilate, uh, John chapter 19, verse 11? He says, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. That was Jesus talking to the governor of the region, second only really to Caesar. You wouldn't have any power if my father didn't give it to you. Couple that with his calm submission to all the numerous accusations that were going to be made against him. Just a couple hours he's going to be on trial and he doesn't even respond. If people were making false accusations to me in a kangaroo court, I'd be furious. I wouldn't have sat there quietly. Again, I've got to tell you, I'm different than Jesus. These all demonstrate that Jesus was a voluntary, not an unwilling victim. He signed up. He volunteered for this. This didn't happen against his will. Now, another thing about Jesus' active foot washing is that it transcended all kinds of class barriers as well. Class barriers are something we like to talk about in the news today and all kinds of barriers. Uh, well, this transcended all of that. Look again at uh, verse 3. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had all things into his hands, and that he was come from God, and he was sent and went to God, he still rose up from the supper. Jesus was fully aware of his own divinity, but in spite of that, he condescended to minister to these human beings who were his natural inferiors. He is God. He came from God. He was going back to God. But Jesus' love stepped right over the boundaries of class and allowed the Lord of glory to be a servant to men. Now, a little bit of a history lesson. 
Anybody up for that? All right. The cultural history. Uh, let's look into the culture of the act of foot washing to see the depth of Jesus' submission here. In the Middle East, in those days, to some degree, uh, even amongst the uh, Bedouin tribes today, uh, a slave would wash the feet of guests who would come in from the dusty roads. Uh, and by the way, yes, Bedouin tribes still have slaves today. Slavery is very alive and well all over the world. Uh, now, since this Last Supper was in a private home, and also very likely in secret, remember, everybody wanted to kill Jesus at this point. In fact, they will kill him in just a couple hours. This was probably done in secret. This was definitely done in a private home. There was no slave available to do this job. And in any case, uh, the disciples were preoccupied. Remember, I, the way I read this, this was at the exact time when the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. Who was the most important among these disciples? So as a result, none of them, they're too busy arguing about who's the None of them volunteered to take the slave's position and wash the feet of the other ones. I mean, Bartholomew, why didn't you put on a towel and wash these guys? We don't even know anything else about Bartholomew. Don't you think he could have done the job? Peter, why didn't you get down there and do that? You see, people are pretty often, they're ready to fight for the throne, but they're not ready to fight for the towel, are they? Folks haven't really changed that much, have they? We're all the same. But another thing that I can't help but notice here is that Jesus' love is an active love. Jesus' love is a love that takes action. The supper, this supper here was interrupted at least twice. As I say, read through all the other Gospels and you'll see the interruptions. You'll see how these things work together. Verse 2 says, and supper being ended says. Uh, not really the very clearest reading. The phrase that's used literally means and supper was interrupted or supper was stopped. It doesn't mean that supper was completed. Uh, we know that it wasn't completed because verse 4 tells us that Jesus rose from the supper again. So there was an interruption in verse 2. Supper wasn't completely finally ended. It was interrupted a little bit. Verse 4, we're back to supper, and Jesus rises from it again. Verse 23, as I'm all back at supper again. So it was interrupted several times this evening. So let's run through this scene just once for clarity here. The disciples all come into the room. They look around. They don't find any slave to wash their feet. So they all just sit down to uh, eat without the usual foot washing. Oh, well, nobody to wash our feet. Let's just sit down. And while they're sitting down, they start arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus seems to have taken his time. He let all this unfold. He knew everything about this. He knew he was, he'd come from God. He knew he was going back to God. He knew he was going to betray him. He knew who was going to deny him. He knew that they didn't even consider who was going to wash the feet. He knew all this. And he lets it happen. And finally, he just quietly takes the role on himself. And the job isn't a very nice one, but it had to be done. 
Jesus' love led him to do an undesirable job. Are there undesirable jobs to be done around here? Are there undesirable jobs to be done in this world? Are there undesirable jobs to be done in this church? Jesus' love led him to do those undesirable jobs. But did you know that love cleanses? See, the little discussion between Jesus and Peter is pretty profound. It's more profound than a simple argument over social status. Uh, you know, Peter says, oh, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And we can look at that. Somebody of your social status, Jesus, shouldn't be doing this. That's true. But it's more than that. Jesus' argument against Peter's argument against Jesus washing his feet was prompted by his shame. He saw that it was unfitting. Master should be washing the feet of a disciple. Peter saw that and he knew better and he felt bad about it. In verse 7, Jesus says, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Then in verse 8, Jesus says, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now, those statements Jesus makes lead to a spiritual truth. They tell a spiritual truth that Peter doesn't grasp at the time. He's going to understand it later. The truth is, Peter wasn't going to understand this till after the cross. When it was, he's going to see the cross as a picture of the cleansing that was offered to all men. And that's, by the way, uh, that's what Paul spoke about. Let's turn over to Titus. We've got a little bit of time here. Let's turn to Titus. Paul talked about this. Titus chapter 3. Verses 4 to 7. This is Paul talking. He says, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It wasn't by any works of righteousness that we've done. It's by everything that Jesus did. Now, notice that this cleansing of love needs to be renewed from time to time. It needs to happen over and over. Peter's instant response is, uh, in verse 9 is kind of funny. Uh, Jesus says, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part in me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, knowing Peter like we do, I can almost picture Peter start ripping his clothes off. Get, okay, well, if that's the case, Jesus, start wash, oh, wash me all the way, head to toe. I think Peter was that type of guy. I mean, we laugh, but uh, I really think that's just about where Peter was going. All right, well, I'm all in. That would be typical Peter here. See, Peter doesn't want to miss out on any part of the blessing Jesus could bring to him. And his response comes from a genuine but imperfect 
affection for his master. He had a genuine love for Jesus, but it wasn't perfect. He was impetuous. He reacted in his emotions. Peter was a lot like me. And Jesus calmly replies, he says, he that's washed doesn't need anything but to wash his feet. You're clean all over, Peter. Now, this is where some of the other translations might help you out here. Uh, the King James only uses washed and wash, uh, basically two tenses of the same verb. They're actually two Greek verbs. Uh, one is luo, meaning to bathe, to bathe all over, and one is nipto, meaning to wash a part of your body, wash your hands or wash your face. Jesus is literally saying, if you've had a luo, if you've had a bath, all you need is a little spot washing, a little nipto here and there. So let's look at this from a theological perspective. I mean, why are you here? The essential problem of the filthiness of my sin was taken care of once and for all at the cross, wasn't it? But I still need a regular spot washing as I confess my sins on a daily basis, you see. The washing of feet was a routine thing. This might happen more than once a day as you enter different folks' houses. If you went to see, if I went to visit Oscar, he would have one of his slaves come out and wash my feet. And then if I went down the road and I uh, went to the Depew's house, they would do the same thing for me. Uh, this might happen more than once a day. Just like you're doing dirty work at home, you may have to wash your hands more than once a day. Just like the open confession of our sins. Once we realize what we've done, we ought to be confessing our sins right away, right? Not going around with dirty hands all day long. That spot washing may have to happen several times. My sins have been taken care of on the cross once and for all. But I need to make confession once in a while and clean up. Look at Jesus' statement. He says, you're clean, but, but not all. That showed the disciples that he's about to show them a deeper spiritual truth in just a minute and that they need to pay attention. There's more to come. See, the uncleanness of Judas, that's who he's talking about here, the uncleanness of Judas wasn't his feet. It was his heart. Jesus cleaned up his feet. That wasn't the problem. The whole scene is like an acted-out parable, don't you see? It was Jesus acting out a parable. So let's put it into contrast here as we wrap up. I'm, I'm just about done. In contrast to the disciples who were self-seeking, arguing about who was the best among them, who was going to have the highest status position, while that's all going on, Jesus... Our perfect picture, right? Took on a position of humility. He set the example of service in the face of their arguing and strife. So the lesson I can take, if I can see something that needs doing, something that I could, 
I could handle, some act of service, it doesn't matter to me what other people might be arguing about. It doesn't matter whether they're arguing politics, whether they're arguing over petty, trivial things. None of that matters if there's something I ought to be doing in the service of my God. I should just do it. Arguing around me doesn't really matter, does it? Jesus was a perfect example of that. He showed self-abasement rather than self-exaltation. And that really demonstrates what Paul was writing about in Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar passage, but let's look at it in the context of what we're talking about today. Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 5 to 8. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now that was talking about him descending from heaven to become our Savior, as a human being, but he took it even further than that to serve his fellow human beings, human beings who would deny him, human beings who would betray him. He became a servant even to them. See, this humble act of Jesus pictures the removal of spiritual uncleanness. Jesus he clearly intended for his disciples to dedicate themselves to this same mentality. He expected them to be devoted to service and to care for one another, rather than seeking their own advancement. That's the lesson he's trying to teach them. And it didn't take. Again, Peter didn't really grasp this concept till after the cross. Now, throughout the epistles, we, knew, we do know that this sort of thing did take for them eventually. As you read through the rest of the New Testament, as they started writing the epistles, the, the letters that we have to read, they use terms like bond slave. They use terms like apostle, one sent on a mission. See, eventually this did take. They're, by the way, Paul's not bragging when he calls himself an apostle. Peter's not bragging when he calls himself an apostle. That's not boastful. That's, I'm one who's been sent on a mission. I'm just a servant. That's what apostle really means. It's not a boastful statement. I'm just a servant. I'm a bond slave. That's how they describe their ministries after that. See, a bond slave is the property of an owner. An apostle is at the disposal of the one who commissioned him to a task, whatever that task may be. He's at the disposal of the one who commissioned him. Jesus took upon himself the form of a bond slave. We just read that in Philippians chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 says, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our profession. The one sent on a commission at the 
whim of the one who commissioned him. Jesus demonstrated exactly how we are supposed to act toward our fellows. Regardless of his own desires, Jesus took care of their needs. He's our master and our Lord. We are to be his bond slaves and his apostles. I think that's something for us to work on. And that makes the last couple of things we've looked at, looking at being more godly, being more holy, this is putting it into action, don't you see? It's not just so that we can look better, so that we can flex, so that we can pose. It's so that we can do, don't you see? So that's three weeks. I, I hope that the thought tied together pretty well for you. Do you mind if I close in a word of prayer? Lord, I do thank you for the example you give to us. The example of giving up all to serve. I ask your Holy Spirit to guide us in how we can be more in that image. Because again, I don't think we've got much more time. Help us to serve our fellows in this world around and to advance your ministry. That's what we're here for. It's in your name I pray. Amen.